Welcome to the IOD's Director Role Model Podcast. In this podcast, we will be undertaking a series of interviews with IOD members as part of our Role Model Program. Hello, I am Hugo Lee, the IOD's Media and Communications Lead. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Susie Walton. Susie is a member of the IOD's board, as well as sitting on a range of other boards across a number of different sectors. She is qualified as a chartered occupational psychologist, chartered scientist, and chartered director. Welcome, Susie, to the podcast. Thank you. Hello, Hugo. Um, Susie, it's fair to say that you've had a um, you've enjoyed a broad and varied career. Uh-huh. You've been a West End actress, you've had your own radio program, you were a scientist in the MOD, and you were also in the Cabinet Office, um, and now have a large portfolio of board roles. Um, hopefully, we can explore some of that in more detail as we discuss um, um, going forward. But looking back to when you were younger, can you remember what your aspirations were? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, you might say, did I did I intend to be a scientist and then the acting just happened? Or was I always destined for the West End stage and then somehow became a scientist? Well, actually, uh, I had no aspirations as a child. I had um, I had a strange upbringing. I was on my own with my dad. He'd flown Spitfires in the war. And, um, and then it was just him and me at home. And um, basically, I put my head down and did the best I could at school. Uh, just trying to get through. Then my dad got really quite ill. And um, at about the age of 14, I realized I was going to have to stand on my own two feet really quite early. So at the age of just 16, I packed my bags and I went down to London, ended up in a hostel in North London, um, basically to get a job so I could be independent and stand on my own two feet. So I had no aspirations I needed to earn money. And I was very lucky. I don't know if it was, do you, does luck find you or do you find luck? Anyway, I needed a job and I thought I would end up working in a bar or something like that. But my friend said, you've got no confidence, Susie. You've come from up north. You've got no confidence. So we were sat there in the hostel. Somebody opened a copy of the stage, the newspaper for, for the theatre. And there was an open audition for a West End show. It was coming to the West End from Broadway called Children of a Lesser God. And somebody said to me, Susie, you need confidence. I, I want you to go to that open audition. If you can walk out onto the stage for that audition, then you can go and get a bar or a restaurant job. That will, that will teach you about confidence. Uh, so I thought it was a very strange idea, but um, I had courage. Uh, so I went to this West End audition for Children of a Lesser God, um, walked out onto the stage, just trying to hold my head high and get through it so I could then go off, say, I've got my confidence now, I can go and get a bar job. But they asked me, and I read for this role called Lydia, who was a young deaf girl from America. She was approximately 16. And I read for this part, and the producer in the front row leant forward and said, Susie, could you come back tomorrow? Could you read the whole play and come back tomorrow? So I thought it was a bit strange. So I went away, read the play, realized that actually Lydia was a deaf girl. Um, didn't know how you do all of that. How do you, I didn't know sign language. Anyway, came back, read the part again, this time thinking through the character a bit more, 
And um, it turns out that they'd auditioned a lot of British actresses for the role of Lydia because uh, you had to have an equity card. I think you still do to play a major role. I didn't have an equity card. But if they can't find somebody, a British actress with an equity card, they can put you in the role. Anyway, so I came back about six times all in all, eventually dressed as Lydia, learned a bit of sign language. And they said, would you like the part? Would you like the part? So initially I understudied. Uh, but then the part was mine, and it was only going to be a six-week run in a, a, in a fringe venue. But it turned out to be the best play on Broadway and the best play in the West End. So I was with Children of a Lesser God for three and a half years wow. uh, in, in London, in two venues in London and on a national tour. And I played Lydia, who was a young deaf girl. I learned American Sign Language. So, uh, so I had my name in lights. At the West End stage, would take a curtain call every night and then go back to my hostel in North London. So that was a very strange upbringing uh, and then a strange first job. Absolutely. I mean, fascinating. Clearly, you therefore didn't follow the sort of normal, I say normal, but the, the normal career path in that you, you then um, went to university in your, your late 20s as a mature student, gaining three degrees, I think, including a PhD. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what made you th- then go back into academia, as it were, and what did you decide to study? Yes, well, I would have gone. I think I would have gone to university at 18 if I'd have stayed on in Nottingham. But for the reasons I mentioned, I left home early. So there I was on the stage three and a half years. Eventually, the play had to close. And then I thought, well, now what? I'm now technically an actress, but I haven't got any qualifications. So what on earth do I do? Uh, but then I was I discovered uh, Sky News. I went along to, to Sky and said, basically, um, it, could I have a job? Um, and they said, not yet. You haven't had enough broadcast experience. So I went to LBC Radio um, and was given a little slot on a program called The Night is Young with Steve Allen. He's still on LBC. And um, I had to do wacky things three times a week. And that seemed to go quite well. So then the radio station said to me, we've got this travel program called Time Off. Um, and we think you might be the right sort of brand for that. So we'd like you to work on it. Would you like to be producer, presenter or editor? I didn't really know uh, at that age what any of those roles were. Um, so I said I would give it a go. But could I try all three roles while I decided um, which which one I was suited for? So I became producer, presenter and editor of my own program, Time Off. Um, and I did all three roles because uh, I found that I could do them. So I was in charge of it. I was in charge of the content. I was in charge of what I did, where I did it. So I would go abroad approximately twice a week. And then I would edit everything overnight in the studio. So every Saturday, my program would go on air. And um, it was absolutely fantastic. And I did that for several years, about three and a half years, um, until my first child came along. I took him with me and then discovered that uh, you can't really record a program in Hong Kong with a baby with you. So I realized it was time for another change. I loved radio. I really loved radio. Um, but because I'd then been a presenter, producer, editor, I thought I'd got a bit of experience under my belt. So uh, I went to Sky again and I said, I've got a bit more experience now. And uh, they, uh, they gave me a role as a news producer 
and occasional newsreader, but mostly as a producer. So I was a producer of news. But it was at that point, Hugo, back to your question, that I suddenly realized absolutely everybody had got a degree. Um, and I hadn't. Now, I wasn't sure if that meant I couldn't do the job or or what, but I started to get a little bit um, anxious after a while that maybe I should have one of these degrees because clearly it gives you something. So I decided I would leave Sky and I would look around for where to go to university. And I wanted to read science. I'd always been good at science at school. Um, but I found that universities wouldn't let me in. I didn't have A-levels. There was no way I was going to be allowed um, to go to university. I was seen as an actress who then had a broadcast career. And no, you can't go to university. Um, but then I discovered you, the Open University. So I did A-level equivalents. And I discovered that although I couldn't read a natural science, such as chemistry or biology, I could read psychology, which is a, a, which is a science. And I went to Hertfordshire University to do a BSc in psychology, which was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Had my second child during this um, time, and it was suggested to me that maybe I'd like to take a year off, uh, which I didn't because uh, I wanted to get the degree done. So uh, I would just take him with me usually, and uh, I managed. I got through, but I had a different philosophy. I my philosophy was I was there to study. I really, you know, I had a young family. I was there to study, so I put my head down. I was no brighter than anybody else, but I put my head down and just studied. And so I got a first class degree and the university prize, and I was offered a scholarship to then do a master's degree. Uh, so I did that, um, really enjoyed that, uh, and did quite well in that as well. And then when I left, uh, I got an interesting proposition from the Ministry of Defence uh, as to whether I would like to be a research scientist at the Defence Evaluation and Research Agency uh, uh, Dara, as it was called, in um, in Farnborough. So that was my first job after university. And I'll never forget arriving on a military base uh, with the high, the, the, the barbed wire, and actually reporting to work as a research scientist. Because when you've come from Nottingham with no qualifications, and everybody thinks you're that, that actress from that play, and then I was suddenly a legitimate scientist. I threw myself into it. I absolutely loved it. I did a lot of classified research, which we can't talk about the detail. Um, but you mentioned three degrees. So by this stage, I'd done the two. Then I was at, uh, at, the, uh, at the MOD, but in Farnborough. But they then asked me to move up to Whitehall to uh, the Ministry of Defence main building, as it's known, to the headquarters of the MOD. So I moved up to, up to MOD in Whitehall. Um, and had an absolutely amazing career uh, as a, a, a as a, a an operational psychologist for the Ministry of Defence. Um, and most of that, I'm talking quite slowly now because you are governed by the Official Secrets Act. Uh, so there's a lot you can't say. Uh, but basically, I was a psychologist. I investigated all kinds of things from uh, human error in aviation accidents to uh, research for the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. And in fact, that was when I did my PhD because there had been a very significant problem in the forces with suicide and there was no easy answer to it. And uh, the Secretary of State realised, uh, Secretary of State for Defence at the time, realised that the only way we could truly get an answer to this was 
good, thorough piece of research, a PhD. And I was asked to undertake that PhD alongside my day job with the Ministry of Defence. So I was attached to Cranfield University, but very rarely went there because the research was classified, uh, but spent several years doing, uh, doing the PhD alongside my day job. So that was quite a handful. And I had the children. And Actually, also at that time, Hugo, my uh, my then husband sadly uh, died of leukemia. So uh, that was quite tough dealing with a uh, you know family that needed holding together plus a PhD that was to do with um, uh, death. It was it was quite a difficult time. But the Ministry of Defence was an absolutely brilliant employer, and um, I gave my all to them. And, and they were very kind to me as well when I was then a widow with young children. Well, that's yeah. f- fascinating to hear hear about that experience. Um, clearly, you did move on from the um, the MOD, and I think you went into the Cabinet Office and worked for a time in the um, Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. But, I, but I'd be interested to know, you talked about the fact that you became a single mother, um, and it, we're, a, we're a female, obviously we're a female scientist. And I'd be interested to know you know, if there were any barriers that you encountered as, you know, as part of that experience? A brilliant question, Hugo. There could have been, I think there could have been a lot of barriers, but I had no choices. I had, I had to earn a living for my family. And therefore, for example, when I had at the time two young boys, and I'm thinking of a specific example, when I had to go to a NATO event, um, and it was on an airbase in, in America, I took the children with me. Um, I had no idea quite how we would cope, but I took them with me. And when I got there, I just asked if we could work something out such that I could do my job, that the children uh, could have a little bit of care. And and that's really how I approached all the challenges. Uh, The other thing was, for example, becoming a senior civil servant is quite a thing in, in the civil service. It's a big leap. And scientists didn't make that leap as frequently as generalists. But I knew that for my future career and earning potential, I needed to be a senior civil servant. So I applied for one of the assessment centers. There weren't very many scientists doing it, but I just had to have the attitude, I have no safety net. I have got to do this. And I went to the, it was a very long assessment center somewhere, I think in in Southampton. And I just gave it my all did all the assignments and the exercises. It was very stressful, but I got through it. So I was then um, I was then appointable as a senior civil servant. But that really has been my approach right through. Because there were no options, I just had to give every opportunity a go. But I was conscious that I might fail many times. And therefore, I would always say to myself, if I fail, I will deal with that. But I must not be afraid to fail. Fascinating. Um, you obviously then did leave, um, did, did leave the civil service. Uh, I think you were, um, and then you spent the last decade, I believe, on over fifteen different boards um, as a non-exec director. How yeah. did the switch from central government to board director happen? Um, and and I'd love to hear about some of the boards that you've sat on. Yes. I loved uh, the senior civil service. I loved central government. After the MOD, I went very briefly to the, the Department of Trade and Industry, and, and uh, I was head of public understanding of science. But then I was asked to go to the Cabinet Office. I was actually asked to um, 
present a research program to the Prime Minister, albeit it wasn't the Prime Minister, it was his representatives, um, uh, to run a program of work called Strategic Futures, which was about making government boards more strategic and making government more able to spot, to horizon scan effectively. Um, I, I gave my pitch. Uh, it was deemed uh, to be okay. And so I was put in charge of this rather large program of work called Strategic Futures uh, in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. And that program of work uh, reported direct to the Prime Minister. So that was an absolutely fascinating opportunity. But doing that job, which I did for a few years, I was working with the Whitehall boards. And I suddenly found myself thinking, I'd like to be on a board. Why can't I be on a board? Oh, you can't be on a board because you haven't spent 25 years in the senior civil service, Susie. Those were some of the things that people said to me. And I may be wrong, but I looked at people on boards and I thought, I think I could do that. Well, why can't I do that? But I worked out that there was absolutely no way I would make it onto a Whitehall board simply because I hadn't had a uh, uh, sufficient numbers of years of experience, and it would take a long time to work my way up. So I looked around for how can I how can I be on boards? Because I really genuinely thought that I could do it, having worked so closely with the Whitehall boards in all different departments. I was still in the cabinet office at this time, but I used to pass the IOD every day. And sometimes I'd pop in for a coffee and I saw some literature on chartered director. And this started going around in my head for months, chartered director. And I thought that is a qualification that will give you what you haven't got, which is some of the some of the academic skills of boardroom governance. Um, I had already started to do some government committee work. Uh, I was on a committee in the Home Office, uh, the, the ethics group of the DNA database. So I was doing a couple of things in government that were board level. But I knew I needed some more training. So uh, I, I spent ages in the IOD looking at the place, looking at the people. And I just thought, I want to be a chartered director. I didn't know if this was a daft idea. Um, but I actually resigned from the civil service and virtually moved into the IOD. Um, I just sat there for months and studied I went through all the IOD courses that you have to go through to do the certificate in company direction and the diploma. Obviously, you can't become a chartered director without board roles under your belt. So while doing this, I made sure I got some trustee roles, some board roles, so that by the time I passed the IOD certificate and diploma, I got a number of board roles under my belt. So I then went forward for chartered director with the experience and the skills, got through that, so became a chartered director, and then uh, decided that I wanted to wanted to sit on more boards. As you say, Hugo, uh, I've now been doing this uh, for over 10 years now, and I've sat on over 15 boards. Now, they're all different. I vowed not to sit on two boards in the same sector. So, for example, one of my early roles was at the University of Westminster, I was on the council, which is equivalent to the board, and I then became the deputy chairman of the university. Um, I joined the RSA, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, which is a think tank. I became the uh, deputy chairman of the board there. Um, I, uh, I went to Birmingham Children's Hospital. 
That, I think, is one of my favourite jobs. Uh, I sat on the board at Birmingham Children's Hospital for several years. Absolutely loved that role. I joined um, Government Science Advisory Council, the one that um, sat in DEFRA. Uh, I was on the State Honours Committee uh, in the Cabinet Office. Um, I'd also been on something called the Council for the Registration of Forensic Practitioners, so that took me into forensic science. And then for the Department of Health, I sat on a, something called the National Specialist Commissioning Group. All of these were in different policy spaces, which was challenging because I had to keep abreast so many different industries. Um, and I never say, as, as a director and as a charter director, there is no such thing as, no, you can't do it. It might be hard, but you can do it. So I've been at the Royal Society of Medicine for the past few years. Um, I've just finished my term as the vice president of the Royal Society of Medicine. But I'm not a doctor, but I am strong at governance. I understand a lot about clinical practices. And so I always feel that if you're a good chartered director, um, you can push yourself into many different areas. I'm also on the on the board at ACCA, which is the Association for Chartered Certified Accountants. Now, that's a global regulator. So I sit on the regulatory board and I chair the qualifications board, and that's global. So that takes your charter director skills into a different domain. Um, and, I, and I represent um, I represent the IOD in, in, in a number of areas. I, I, I am a member of the IOD board. In fact, I think I'm the longest standing member, but I also represent us in a global governance forum. So and I, I was at Combat Stress for a number of years. That was also another of my favorite roles. I was on the, the board at Combat Stress, uh, which treats veterans who've got post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so I've, I've sat, as I say, on, on about 15 or more now different boards, but each one is in a different space. Um, and I will always try never to do two in the same space because then you are constantly challenging yourself and you're bringing a whole lot of fresh, broad thinking into that board um, if you have got a portfolio that's broad. Um, I wanted to just turn next to, I suppose, your family life, which we've very briefly touched on. But um, I think you have seven children now. Um, yes. And you have, which in itself is is um, is is a story right there. I mean, you've combined your career with being a mother, um, and in fact, um, you talked about you know the fact you were widowed as well for a number of years, and that that can't have been easy for you. Um, no, it's uh, there's been a lot of boxing and coxing along the way. There have been some really horrific moments when work and childcare have clashed and I've got so many plates in the air you just think this just this isn't going to fly but my attitude has always been never give up never never give up you do not have to be a hundred percent perfect in all settings what is important is that you're trying your best so yes when we were talking a few minutes ago Hugo we only mentioned two of the children but subsequent to that <laughs> another five have appeared um, the youngest, in fact, and that's probably been my most challenging experience, uh, a little boy arrived three weeks before we went into lockdown. Um, and uh, when a child's first word is mask, as in face mask, um, it really brings home to you that we've been through a pandemic 
And um, that's been very difficult. But back to, I have found it challenging with children, particularly as I was a widow for many years. But I've always tried to give my best to the children, uh, whatever they need, and, and, and to have lots of fun with them. But also to say, hang on a minute, you're being employed and your employer needs things out of you. The board needs things out of you. And when a board has a crisis, you have to drop everything. You have to be there. It's like an air traffic controller and you've got all these roles, hopefully in a steady state, but something will crash. And you cannot say, I haven't got childcare today. I'm sorry. You have to be there for when the organization goes critical. So there have been moments where it's, um, where it's been very tough. Um, but I just have to keep my chin up and do my absolute to, to, to manage all, all the, all the responsibilities. Thank you. Um, and then our sort of final question in, in this space is, is um, what advice would you have for anyone seeking to do what you have done, um, essentially pivot from a varied career that, that, such as yours um, into a portfolio career as a non-exec director? Okay, it can be done. I learned very early that if you ask lots of people for lots of advice, there's a word you'll hear a lot, and that's no. You couldn't do that because of the hours. You couldn't do that because you'd have to travel. No, it's not for you. No, you can't do that. Susie, you can't join the board of the university regulator. You haven't got that background. I've heard all of that. That, that, that was in relation to Hefke, by the way, the regulator for universities. But I did join that board. Um, so I think you have to, you are your own counsel. You're your own judge and jury. You have to listen to yourself. If you want to do something, I would say, give it a go. And there will be practical hurdles, but work out how to overcome the practical hurdles. Because once you've pivoted into the space you want, if there is a practical hurdle, like how do I go abroad with these children, et cetera, et cetera, somebody will help you at that point or give you some advice on the very specific issues. So never be held back by what other people say or by wondering can I really do this just give it a go and sometimes you'll take a wrong direction and you'll say oh no I, this really is not for me I cannot do this and then you just hold up your hands and say I did make a mistake on that one but that shouldn't throw you off track to keep on trying wherever your head and your heart take you. Susie I really enjoyed hearing about your your experiences and your fascinating career spanning lots of different areas. Um, but I now wanted to sort of move on and um, look at childcare as a policy area um, in more detail. Um, clearly, you are someone, as we've discussed, um, that, that has a, a lot of experience juggling children. Um, and, I, and therefore, I would I'm be fascinated to, to get your, your view. Do you think childcare is still an issue um, for working parents? I do. Absolutely, it's still an issue for, for working parents. When I first started working, we didn't have maternity leave then. So when I was doing my radio program, there was no maternity leave, but I worked out that if I pre-recorded my programs, they could go out on air without me even being there. So I managed to keep my job um, uh, because there was no maternity leave. So we've come on, obviously, a long way since there. There are many options for childcare, but to be honest, 
all the options have problems. Uh, and I've tried them all. So uh, it, if I may, I'll just run through what, what the main options are. So it, you've got day nurseries. Uh, that's an option that many people use. They're generally open eight till six all year round. You pay per child. Um, my closest nursery, uh, just as an example, currently, if you have a young child, it's £414 a week. That's per child. If you've got two children under five, that's quite a lot. You've got childminders. Uh, they operate out of their own home. I've used childminders in the past. It's an excellent option. The costs and the hours vary geographically. Um, but in some areas, there are very few vacancies and childminders have their own family. So sometimes they can't do extremely long hours. Nannies, I've used nannies a lot. And that is an excellent choice if you've got more than one child. They come to your home to state the obvious, but it is a huge admin burden. Uh, if you employ a nanny properly, legally, you are the employer. That means the nanny has a contract. Uh, you must pay tax and national insurance. You must give them pay slips. You must give statutory sick pay, maternity pay. Also have to run a pension scheme uh, or subscribe to a pension scheme on their behalf. Now, I've, I had nannies really for quite a long time, um, but I've stopped that because I simply don't have time to do all that admin to employ a nanny properly. Then you've got au pairs, or maybe I should put that in the past tense. We used to have au pairs. I had many. I never forget opening the fridge and finding that pickled shark there every morning uh, with our au pair from Iceland. I had many au pairs. It's really good. You have an au pair. Somebody comes to live with you. They learn English, and they do a certain number. It's limited, a certain number of uh, hours of childcare, but they're not qualified. Um, and a lot of the au pairs have gone home because of Brexit. There are also grandparents. Uh, that's not an option for me, unfortunately, but I know some people have tried that. But as I say, um, uh, there are pros and cons with all of those. And what support does the government offer um, to help help working parents? Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, the press, through the press, you can get the impression that the government doesn't help. That 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 isn't the case. I mean, we do have we have good a good statutory maternity paternity petition uh, position, but there are other things that government does do. Uh, so we have something uh, called tax free childcare where. You get up to, I think I'm right, up to £500 every three months towards the costs. You have to open something called a government childcare account. You pay the provider through that and government tops it up by 20%. Um, but opening your account, I think I was one of the first to open that account. It's not straightforward to open it. And you have to revalidate your entitlement to that benefit, to that top up every three months. Now, uh, uh, so I do that. I, I, I use that system at the moment because I have a child in day nursery, but I, I'm often booted off the system either because I'm too slow um, or because I can't remember the name of my best friend when I was 11. I had quite a few best friends. Um, uh, then, there's, then the government has what we call 30 hours free childcare. And this is, uh, by my understanding, government's big initiative for children aged three to four and I think it's two in some areas. In theory, you get 15 or 30 free hours of childcare. But there are some caveats to that. It's only term time. It's only core hours. 
And many things such as food, equipment or activities aren't included. So this means that parents have to top up the fees. So a parent may think that if they use a day nursery, say two full days a week, then this is going to be free because that's under the 15 or 30 hours. But it's not because of these top up fees. And there is a lot of controversy around top up fees. Very recently, the Department for Education was quoted in the press as saying that top up charges are actually voluntary and the choice to pay them is optional. But I don't think that the providers would see it that way because they have to cover their costs. And then finally, um, what more can the government do from in your view? What, um, how can they help to alleviate the pressures? As you said, they are already doing, um, doing quite a lot in this space. But what, what more should they be doing to remove the barriers for parents? I believe they should be doing more. If you surveyed uh, working parents, that's mothers and fathers, I believe most people would say the system is either uh, uh, too much of a burden or uh, the entitlements just don't work for them in their circumstances. So what could, should the government be doing? Well, there wasn't anything in the budget regarding childcare. I think we need we need a childcare SAR in the UK. We, we do have the Children's Commissioner. But her remit is is vast. It, it's it's huge. I think we need somebody driving the childcare agenda forward. We also need a proper debate around this this issue I mentioned about nursery top up fees and about the employment status of nannies. Um, nannies are not self employed, so it, it, it's not a it's not a tax deductible. Uh, not a tax deductible expense. I can I can employ a driver. I can employ a PA. But a nanny is not tax deductible. Uh, so so we, we needed a proper debate around nursery top-up fees, the employment status of nannies, and other issues. As I say, making childcare a legitimate expense to set against tax, I think, is very important. And the situation, I mean, frankly, in my view, the situation has forced parents, particularly but not exclusively mothers, out of the workplace. So... Let's have the conversation. Let's have the conversation about how the UK can lead, not lag, on enabling parents to work. Well, thank you very much, Susie. I, as I said, it's been a fascinating insight into you, but also I've really, it's been um, insightful to 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 get your experience um, from a childcare perspective to understand. Um, what more the government can do so so thank you for joining me thank you Hugo It's, it's been delightful we hope that you've enjoyed this director role model podcast please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date with the latest podcasts you can find out more about our work on iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. Thank you.